Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So that was all what we got through covering the last couple of weeks. So Jesus gets out of that whole situation. And then verse 14. Now, after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's what they do. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in a boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So what we have here, uh, really the two things we're going to lean into is the story about Jesus beginning his ministry and his call of the disciples. Specifically, we're going to lean into today and ask a lot of our questions around uh, biblical manhood on this idea of Jesus calling his first disciples. Um, as we go through here real quick, let's uh, just kind of pay attention to some of the things that stand out. Let's start at verse 14. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. It's fascinating to know that when Jesus wanted to start this whole ministry thing, he didn't go to the religious epicenter. The religious epicenter was Jerusalem. Jesus chooses to forego Jerusalem to start his ministry to forego the place where the temple was, the place where all the priests were, the people where all the people who supposedly knew the most about God were. Jesus doesn't go start there. Jesus instead goes out into a, a fisherman town. Jesus instead goes out to a place that would have been similar to, you know, a modern day, you know, Seattle, a place that was really hustling and bustling because of what the geography was hustling and busting because of uh, the Sea of Galilee was close by and there's so much fishing, fishing that was happening there. This is where he goes first. He chooses not to go to the religious epicenter and just goes to a regular old town. He goes to Galilee. And when he goes there, uh, John or Mark introduces a new word into the, the Bible here when he says he came proclaiming the gospel of God. Uh, that word gospel Translating the Greek, it was actually in the Koine Greek, was not like the high formal Greek language. It was like street language. It's the, the commoner language is a word, evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelical. That's what the gospel means. It's this good news. And it was in the street language, it was kind of like how you would say if somebody said, hey, I, you know, I got a new job for you and it's a job where you're going to make a million dollars a year. You're going to get 17 weeks paid vacation. And, you know, they, they, it's something that was evangelion was something that was too good to be true. And so he shows up on the scene and he's saying he's proclaiming the gospel of God. Key word there is of. It's not the gospel about God. This is actually the gospel of God. And that's a, that is explaining that this gospel is possessive. This is a gospel that is God's. It's not the, the good news necessarily about God, but it is God's good news in the form of his son. And this is where you have this uh, double entendre of the gospel. 
The gospel is both the good news about Jesus, but Jesus is the gospel. Does that make sense? Like it is what he is, but it's also what he is preaching. And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Another verse that I wish I could spend all morning unpacking with you guys, but I don't want to. When he says the time is fulfilled, anytime you see time, when you're reading in the New Testament, it's either one or two Greek words. Sometimes it's the Greek word chronos, which that implies time like we normally think about time. That's time like you got to watch on. That's time like, you know, it's 640 right now. And then there's another Greek word that time is translated as, and it's kairos. So it's chronos time and kairos time. This word right here in Mark is kairos time. Kairos time, it translates as a special moment in time that from this moment forward, nothing will be the same. So a Kairos moment for me in my life, a Kairos time was March 29th, 2014, when my firstborn son was born. That was a Kairos. From that moment forward, nothing in my life would be the same because now I have the title of father. And so what Jesus is saying here when he or when Marcus explained this, Jesus shows up and he's saying the time is fulfilled. And so when he says the time, the chronos, I mean, not, not the chronos, but the kairos time is fulfilled. He's saying all of history has pointed to this moment. And he explains why in the next phrase. And the kingdom of God is at hand. The reason he says the kingdom of God is at hand is because the king of the kingdom is at hand. He is he has boots on the ground, so to speak, there on the shores of Galilee. And then he tells them what they need to do, which is, is great. And we talked about this a little bit this last uh, Sunday, so I don't want to belabor the point here. But he says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. This is his message, that there is going to be repentance and believing. We're going to turn from our old ways, and we're going to believe this good news about who he is. So he's doing that, and this is what he's beginning to do. Uh, you don't know necessarily what the crowds are like at this moment in time, but one of the first things we do after Jesus says, that, you know, this is what I'm doing, is he passes along the Sea of Galilee. I just picture Jesus kind of out wandering around. Um, raise your hand if you've seen the, uh, the show The Chosen. Anybody watch Chosen so far? Okay, so, so this story is going to, if you've seen that, this story is going to, you know, Remember the chosen, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys this, you know this, but the, the, the whole chosen thing is, uh, it takes some creative liberties. I think for the most part, they are doing a good job to not um, do anything that, though it is extra biblical, is, I don't think anything they're doing is not biblical um, for the most part. So that, all that being said, you having seen that will probably see the story a unique way, maybe a little bit more 3D. So he passes along the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee was uh, 13 miles long, seven miles wide, incredibly deep and incredibly just teeming with fish. I mean, that was a huge, huge industry there. So uh, that was a really big deal. Uh, that was a, a huge um, part of their economy was fisher, fishermen and, and the fish industry. They would even uh, ship fish to all other parts of the uh, the Roman kingdom and everything else. So this is a big deal. He's passing along the Sea of Galilee and he sees Simon and Andrew. He sees his pair of brothers. And what they're doing here is they're casting a net into the sea because, again, they're fishermen. And Jesus says to them, he walks up to them and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So a couple of things I want, I want to draw your attention to here. Um, the Gospel of Luke explicitly gives us some details that allow us to be able to see this story in a little bit more living color. And one of the things that we know in this story is at the moment when Jesus really calls Peter is, is 
in Mark, there are some big details that are left out. In Luke, when Jesus calls Peter and Peter finally comes to a place where he follows him, what has just happened? And again, if you've seen The Chosen, you know the answer to the question. Yeah, a miraculous catch of fish, all right? So there's a miraculous catch of fish. And if you read some of the other Gospels, one of the things you, you find out is that Andrew, apparently, Peter's brother, he comes to faith in Jesus and he believes that Jesus is the Messiah before Peter does. And Andrew goes and now believing that, hey, I've seen the Messiah he goes and gets Peter, and he's trying to talk Peter into believing this, and things kind of point to Peter being, you know, not necessarily cold feet, but somewhat reluctant. He ends up going to Jesus. They get in the boat. Jesus tells them to go out and push out a little bit further, push out a little bit further, and then they have a miraculous catch of fish, and then Jesus asks them to drop his nets and follow him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had those times in my life when I have struggled with something, struggled with something, struggled with something, and then had success... And then you want to keep on doing that thing after you've had the biggest, success, most successful thing of your life. It's like you, if you're in sales, you closing the biggest sale of your life and then Jesus going. And you know how you feel like that. When you close that big sale or you, if you're an athlete, when you win the big game or if you are actually a fisherman, when you land a 10-pound largemouth bass or catch a 14-pound brown trout, you catch those things or you do those things. And in that moment, what do you think? You think, I'm the best in the world at this. And nothing could stop me from doing this forever because I crush it at this thing. Whether it's sales, whether it's uh, something in sports, golf, you know, you get an eagle and you're like, I'm a great golfer. I'm awesome at this. And I, and I love this. And I'm going to keep doing this. And that little bit of success, it makes you want to keep doing the whatever it was that you were doing, Right. When you have success, when you have like the big giant moment, you don't want to go, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm ready to let this go. When do you want to usually let things go? When it's terrible. Yeah, when you've gone, you know, months without making a sale or, or you know, you, you, you hit a 117 uh, that day for that round of golf or, you know, you just got demoted. That's usually when we want to release things. And so it's wild here if we know a little bit more of the story and kind of use the Gospel of Luke as a helper for this story, that when Jesus calls these guys, he calls them at a moment of success to be able to see, like, here's how great this can be, and I'm going to still ask you to let go of this. And it's fascinating that he shows up, and, and that's what he does. Next thing we see is he shows up, and he goes a little bit further, and he goes to these guys, verse 19 here, goes a little farther, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. This was one of the things that they would have to do just to keep them from rotting out and getting broken. And this was you know, just part of what they would do on a daily basis. They're mending their nets. They're doing the, the jobs that they're supposed to. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee and the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So a couple of key things that I, I just love about this uh, passage and I want you guys to be able to lean into and talk about today. I think it is amazing that when Jesus goes to call disciples, he goes to blue collar guys. He doesn't go to the religious elite. He doesn't pick Sadducees, Pharisees and scribes. There is a white collar guy on Jesus' team. Do you guys know who the white collar guy on Jesus' team is? Yeah, Matthew is the white collar guy. He's a tax collector. He's upper crust. You know, he's 
Um, he, he's, he's that guy. And I don't think that's why I love the fact that Jesus isn't, he has a very diverse team. But I do think there is a significance in the first guys that he picks are fishermen. And we're going to talk, you, you guys are going to talk in your groups about even more the significance of that. First people he goes to is fishermen. But you know what's wilder than the fact that the first people he goes to are fishermen? To me, the thing that's even wilder than him going and picking four fishermen is him going to pick anybody. All right? He literally is God. He is literally God in human flesh. But for some reason, when Jesus says, and he comes to earth, and he's starting this grand redemptive mission, the first thing he does before he starts going into town and preaching, before he starts you know, going and healing people, before he starts you know, flipping over tables at temples, the first thing he does is he gets some other men around him. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to leave, like I said, I'm going to leave the fruit on the vine and we're going to continue to talk through and walk through and process through that. He calls these guys to be fishers of men. He calls them to a new life. He, he, he speaks their language. And one of the things that's fascinating, if you know about what they would have thought Jesus was in this moment and what Jesus wasn't, it was clear to everybody, even probably at this moment in time, that Jesus was looked at as a rabbi. So in those verses that we have in 14 through 15, when he shows up and he's, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's doing these things, what we can kind of gather is that Jesus is a teacher and they would begin to look at him like a, a Jewish rabbi. Again, Jew, Jesus is Jewish. And so as he shows up and he's teaching all these things, people are starting to look at him like, okay, well, this must be like a new rabbi who's on the scene, but he's kind of like a, a hippie rabbi and he's saying some things different than our normal rabbi say. Um, but one of the things that was really clear, and this is Hebrew culture, if you get a little bit of the history, you can understand this. In their culture, all of the, the Hebrew boys would have grown up going to Hebrew school. So all of their school was, you know, basically take this chunk of the Bible right here, was to go and learn and study this. So they were taught how to do math through this. They were taught how to read through this. They were taught how to tell stories through this. They were taught all the things about the Bible from the Bible and from the part of it that they had, the Septuagint, the, the Greek, I mean, not the Greek, but the Hebrew scripture that had been passed down, all the stuff about Moses and David and all those things. That's what was essentially their school. Now, when you hit about 13 or 14, you get to this place where you have to decide. You kind of hit this crossroads in life. Am I going to continue on in Hebrew school and become a Sadducee, a Pharisee, or a scribe? And if I'm going to do that, I've got to now take, um, I've got to go apply to a rabbi. So I've got to go sit, submit my resume and, and my parents have to go pay some money. And I, they basically, they're not necessarily like signing over like he's my new dad, but they now submit the child, the young boy to the rabbi. And he becomes the one who looks after them, the one who trains them, the one who teaches them. And this is an elite thing. You have to, you have to, again, you have to, it's like getting into Harvard. You have to apply to become this. For some boys, that's what everyone dreams to become. The way, like little boys in our culture want to be professional athletes, little boys in their cultures, they want to be Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and those guys. For those who don't make the cut, they go into the family business. And so Simon and Peter, James and John are guys who did not make the cut in regards to religion. And what's awesome about their story I'm going to let you guys have the conversation and talk through and walk through the implications of this. 
Jesus is the rabbi, unlike any other rabbi. Every other person who wanted to become a student, an apprentice of a certain rabbi had to apply and would hope, cross their fingers, that they would get accepted to be one of his students. Jesus, unlike any other rabbi, he goes to his students and picks them by hand. And he tells them, he says, if you will follow me, follow me. Again, not believe in me and stay doing your own thing. But if you'll follow me, I will make you guys fishers of men. And it says, immediately they dropped their nets. One of the things that I've taught through on this story before, and I've tried my best to, to, to lead out in my own life. It doesn't always go perfect. But one of the things we learned through this immediate, immediate following is that delayed obedience is disobedience. If they're going, you know what, Jesus, we just got this giant catch of fish, and you know, I got I to gotta, you know, cash this in, so to speak. Um, will you be around this time tomorrow? I think there's a different story. I think we, we don't have the book of First Peter and Second Peter. I think we don't have First John, Second John, and Third John, because these are guys who, when they saw who Jesus was, I don't know if it was something, I don't know what it was in their heart and what it was in their eyes. I don't know what it was in what Jesus had done for them in that moment, but there was something about them to where they knew there was something special about this guy. And I think it was further than there's something special. I think they realized he's the Messiah. And there, there was hope for their hearts on that. Because if they had gone through Hebrew school and they had learned all those things, everything in the Old Testament pointed to this coming Messiah. And they're hoping their, and crossing their fingers that this is who is on the scene with them. Jesus, I thank you for another time to not just dig into your word, but then to uh, dig into our lives, to ask questions, to be able to discuss things. I pray that our discussion is just thick, rich, life-giving, Jesus. I pray that every man in here, God, who has tendencies to be Lone Ranger, to do it on their self, I pray that they would continue to lean into moments like this and rooms like this and be able to realize, God, that their manhood, if it's going to be biblical, is going to have to be a team. It's going to have to have other people involved that they cannot get through this life alone. And if you needed 12, I don't know how many we need, but we're going to need more than ourselves. So, Jesus, I pray that these circles that we're in would be reminders, Jesus, that we need each other. We have to have each other, that we're better with each other. And I pray that we share from pure hearts, open hearts, and long to see you lifted up and long to see each other encouraged for your glory, not ours. In your name.